to have you with us. If I've not met you before, I'd love to chat to you over morning tea. And even if I haven't met you before, I'd love to chat to you over morning tea. It'd be good to chat. So um, put me read up first for me this morning. Our printer in the office um, was uh, ran out of ink this morning. So I'm on my iPad. So that's why I've got my readers on. Okay. <laughs> you can see what's going on. So I wonder what springs to mind if I ask you to imagine a church filled with the Holy Spirit. Or what springs to mind if I ask you to think of a person filled with the Holy Spirit? Uh, we're, in, we're looking at the, the book of Ephesians. We're getting towards the end now. And in the second half of the letter that we've been looking at, um, we've been looking at how to live a life worthy of our calling. So a life worthy of all the blessings that Jesus' followers have. Um, we're united with, with him we're adopted as sons, of daughter, as sons and daughters of God by grace. Everything's going to be all right for us. And last week we saw um, in chapter 5, verse 18, that we're not to be drunk out of control. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's the idea of letting God control and impact all of your life. All of your life as we put off the old and we put on the new. Um, so being filled with the Spirit picks up on some ideas that we've already seen in the letter. Um, chapter 123, that we are Christ's body who he fills with himself as church. And in chapter 3, verse 16, that we have the Holy Spirit in our inner being. So the good news is that we can keep on being transformed into being more like Jesus um, as we join in with what God is doing in us. Now, today's reading, um, I think we started at verse 20, but um, you notice in your Bibles there's a gap and there's a new paragraph and it begins with verse 21. But actually, that sentence in the original language begins in verse 18, and the main verb is the be filled. So, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then from that be filled, there's four ing words that hang off it. So, four participles that hang off being filled. And they tell us the results of what being filled with the Holy Spirit are, or some of them. So let's have a look at them. There's the speaking, singing. This is going on from verse 18 to 21. Speaking, singing, giving thanks, and the fourth one is submitting to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if we're a spirit-filled church, we'll be submitting um, appropriately. I was a bit surprised by that. I don't know about you. But you see, us being united in Christ as we are isn't a private thing. It's not just between an individual and God. It's to be lived out in real life, in community together, in practical ways. So living a life worthy of our calling, worthy of our salvation, must define how we conduct our relationships. But why in submission? Why submission? Because everyone and everything is heading towards submitting to Jesus, being under him, either as his brothers and sisters, made clean by him, or under his judgment. So as his, we, church, as his body, submit to Jesus' headship. So submitting appropriately in relationships 
it is in tune with that reality. It demonstrates that entrusting yourself to someone um, can be a beautiful thing. It demonstrates that Jesus' submission to the Father is beautiful, and our submission to Jesus is beautiful. So today we'll look at how this impacts in the home and briefly at work as well. Um, we'll concentrate more on the, the husband and wife relationship more, because I think that, that bit helps us to see the gospel motivation, the, the, the what we already have in Jesus motivation behind why we should submit appropriately. But what it isn't, so I've said the word submit or submission a few times already, and there's a good chance that your hackles are already being raised. So we bring lots of baggage to the world, don't we? Um, I don't know if you think of, I've got a picture there, I think, Robert. Maybe this is what you think, think of when you think of husbands and wives submitting to husbands. We'll take that off again. Uh, I'm just aware there may well be people here who suffered in unhealthy relationships and associate that suffering with this word, Submission. So can I say up front uh, what this is not about, what submission is not about? It's not about oppression or subjugation. It's not about being exploited. It's not even about being unequal. I hope to show you that submission is a good thing. Uh, This is about submitting in reverence to Christ. So we've got to turn to Jesus for our definitions of submission and love in relationships. We're going to look at Jesus. So first of all, in your outlines, we're going to look at a heavenly marriage. Three things about a heavenly marriage. So several places in the Old Testament, um, God's people, Israel, are described as God's bride. Um, A bride who time and time again were unfaithful to God. So some of you might remember when we did Isaiah, that um, Jerusalem in in parts of that is personified as a shameless prostitute. And eventually God uh, separates from his bride, sending them into exile. But now we see in these verses that God is making this new human, Jew and Gentile together, the church, he's making us into his bride the wedding's back on, the venue's booked, the overpriced canapes and drinks package is paid for. So let's have a look at three aspects of this, this heavenly marriage. Firstly, verse 25, Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, now, I don't know if any of you who are married have got um, an impressive engagement story. I haven't. You can ask me about that later. But here's some good ones. I've got some. So I can imagine a, um, a farmer doing this. It's really over the top. There's uh, another one. This one was um, a couple who were into running. And they, he said, let's do a run to our, the place where we first dated and tracked it on the GPS and wrote out, marry, marry me, question mark, with the GPS. That's a bit over the top. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> this one's my favorite. Like a photograph at an amusement park. Cool. Thanks, Robert. Impressive engagement stories. But the most impressive engagement story 
is the cross. Christ's engagement with his church was at the cross. See, he demonstrated his love and commitment for us, to us by giving himself up to death on the cross, taking our sin on himself. Jesus willingly submitted to the God the Father's will, uh, one with him in purpose through all eternity. Jesus loved us, church, his bride, self-sacrificially, putting our interests above his own, putting our sinful lives above his perfect godly life. So Jesus loved the church. And secondly, he got her ready for her wedding day. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, I understand that on a wedding day, there's a fair bit of effort goes into getting the bride ready. Uh, so I'm told, okay. It's easy for blokes. I remember uh, one friend, we played five-a-side on his wedding day in the morning. We were all a bit easy on the tackles that morning. Um, for me, um, I had a shower, put on my suit, and we had some fish and chips for lunch. Meanwhile, Sharon was, I don't know, was it hair? Somewhere for makeup, somewhere for hairdo, getting the dress on. All takes time to prepare the bride. Jesus prepared his bride, the church. Jesus, by dying for us, Jesus made us holy. Uh, that washing with water language could be about baptism, but it's probably referring to Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. I had to look it up, it's okay. Um, where Jerusalem is God's bride, whom he's basically picked up out of the gutter, and, and he cleans her up, and adorns her so richly that she's like a princess or a queen. See, Jesus gave up all his royal heavenly privilege to lift us, his church, up, making us like a princess. He did everything he could to make us the best we can be, giving us his holiness and his purity without blemish, not physically, I can see a few blemishes and wrinkles around the place, but in our hearts without blemish, pure. So Jesus loved his church. Jesus got us ready for our, our wedding day. And thirdly, he consummated the marriage. Now, I can't dress this up, right? The way Paul illustrates the intimacy Christ has with his church in eternity is with sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. In marriage, our bodies belong to one another. Physically and spiritually, we become one in God's eyes. And Jesus loves us as if we were part, we, his church, were part of his own body. And that's why he cares so much about what happens to us. And for Jesus, our sinfulness is like an autoimmune disease. It's like his own body attacking him. So he's cared for us 
uh, ridding of us of our, of our sin disease and nurtures us into right relationship with God. So overall, Jesus is our perfect self-sacrificing model of love and submission. So this is the example. He is the example to keep in mind as we work out what it means to submit appropriately in our relationships. Okay, so working it out. Firstly, wives. Uh, verse 22. Wives, sub- submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the lo- to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the saviour. Of which he is the saviour, sorry. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Uh, So a good question is, well, why wives submitting to husbands? Why not the other way around? Um, None of this is reinforcing notions about the, the place of a woman based on cultural norms. We all have our cultural norms. Um, in other letters, when Paul is talking about the same thing, he, he doesn't talk about Ephesian culture um, or any other culture. He gives the reason for this order of things from Genesis chapter 2, from creation order. So in God's perfect creation before sin... God made male and female to bear his image. Equal. Uh, Male and female are different, but equal in their value and significance to God. In God's perfect plan, someone has to take headship. So carrying out God's rule under his authority. Uh, Adam was created first, and Eve came from him. So Adam is the husband takes the role of being head. So there's no getting past it. There is an asymmetry in the biblical model of marriage. The husband is to be the head, but the kind of head we've seen in Christ. So as the church submits to Jesus' loving, caring headship, which is only ever working for our benefit, So the wife is called to subject herself to her husband's selfless care. And in doing so, she's demonstrating that to entrust yourself to someone is a really beautiful thing. It's a living demonstration of the trust Jesus put in the Father in submission. And it's a living demonstration of the trust followers of Jesus have in submitting to him. So a Christian wife can say, because I submit to my saviour, I submit to my husband. Now that does all sound great if we're submitting to Jesus. Um, If we're submitting to that kind of selfless love that seeks to, to serve. But I know that I, amongst probably all the other husbands here, know that I'm not always like Jesus. And some husbands are just plain terrible. Should they be submitted to? Let's be really clear, okay? This is not a call to submit to abuse. This is not a call to submit to abuse. 
self-centered, sinful demands to sin against God or for a wife to be servile or oppressed, they are not expressions of headship and need not be submitted to. So notice in verse 22, it says, Submit as you do in the Lord. So a wife can only submit to her husband as long as it, all, is it, as long as it is also being obedient to God. The submission to a husband is to demonstrate submission to God, who gave him the headship in the first place. So she can't submit sinfully. It would be a contradiction. But also notice it doesn't say, only submit if your husband is perfect all the time. There is um, still value in submitting to an imperfect husband. Uh, even when he's providing poor headship. Because it's the orderliness of relationships that's key. Demonstrating that the entrusting of yourself to someone else, this headship is a good thing. So what might it mean in practice for a wife to submit as the church submits to Christ? Well, it means receiving her husband's love and care and provision means supporting and encouraging and providing input to her husband's initiatives to lead the family. It means helping her husband to take responsibility and have the book stop with him. It means working with him to make his headship be as Christ-like and glorifying to God as he can humanly make it. So that's wives. What about husbands? Uh, found that in verses 25 and 28 and 33. Who is it that a wife can hope to submit to? Well, his headship isn't about exercising power. So nowhere in this passage, or the passages about marriage, is the husband told to exercise his headship, or lead, or take authority. Now, the idea of submission implies that he has authority and responsibility, yes. But that's not what the focus of the teaching in the New Testament is. What this passage does have a lot to say about is how husbands should love their wives. So verse 25, he's told to love his wife, denying himself. Denying himself even to the point of death. The husband is to take initiative and care for his wife, putting her needs above his own. So husbands, we're all to do all we can for our wives to make sure that she's ready to meet Jesus face to face. So take the initiative to get you both praying and reading the Bible and prioritizing fellowship with church. So a good diagnostic question for us husbands is, are you looking after your wife's spiritual health as much as her financial and physical health? Look to Jesus for how to love your wife. So he took the initiative, uh, seeking our, uh, seeing our need and meeting it. Practically, actively seek to make sure your wife is growing to maturity in Christ. Uh, verse 28, we are to love our wife 
as we, as we do ourselves, as we love ourselves. So blokes spend a lot of money on lotions and potions and beauty things. I, don't I remember when I was growing up, the bathroom cabinet, dad's bit of it was about this big. It had a shaving brush, his razor, and his denture cleaning tablets, and that was about it. I've got a drawer full of, uh, you know, moisturizer, exfoliator, and stuff like that. It's working, obviously. <laughs> we care for our bodies. But in God's eyes, uh, husbands and wives are one. So loving our wife is loving ourselves. So husbands, let's do a little thought experiment, okay? Now, I found a, an article on Mamma Mia. That's a popular website for women if you didn't know. And this is a spoof article. Imagine in the day, they were having a good laugh at the idea of a submissive wife. And this is a kind of a spoof article. But I don't want you to think about the wife. I want you to think about the husband in this scenario and how he might love his wife as if he were his own body. So here we go. This is the silly article. A submissive wife wakes up before her family to get ready for the day ahead. She'll get dressed first so her husband wakes up to an attractive, well-groomed wife who is calm and in control. She'll then make sure the house is tidy and pack bags and lunches for her children and her husband. A submissive wife will prepare breakfast for her family so as they wake up, they can eat a healthy and delicious meal to start the day. At no time does she seem disorganized, rushed, or lose her temper. Everyone can relate to that morning? No? The caricature in this article has effectively reduced the issue of sub submitting to a husband to being about domestic chores, hasn't it? But that's often where the rubber hits the road. So let's filter this through what the Bible says about how the husband should love his wife as his own body. So if he loves to have everything ready when he gets up, well, the chances are his wife does as well. So maybe he should get up before her and have everything ready and tidy. He wants her to be well-groomed. Well, maybe he should think about um, changing out of those 12-year-old faded pajamas that have got holes in. Tidy house, lunch is ready. Well, maybe if the husband does all of that, uh, loving his wife as if she was his own body, maybe then they'll have time to read the Bibles together over breakfast. Now, I'm not, if, you, if you run things where the wife does all those things, I'm not criticizing that. If you've decided it mutually, that's how you're going to run things. But a husband should never belittle or oppress his wife. He shouldn't treat her like a servant. Or he shouldn't treat his wife like he's the boss and she's an employee. Because none of that fits with the picture we've got here. Husband should instead be seeking her good, finding ways to help her flourish as a woman of God. So what if he's single? So you're going to be seeing anything, that's all right for them. I'll sit here, single. I'll tune in later on. What if he's single? What's this got to do with you? Well, marriage here is shown to be a good thing for all of us, but not an ultimate thing. So marriage is good for us and it points to a greater reality beyond itself. Jesus' relationship with his church. So marriage reflects the gospel in the self-sacrificial love and submission that we've just been talking about. 
But singleness is also a God-ordained way of pointing to the gospel. Because singleness testifies to the sufficiency of Christ. That Jesus and our ultimate marriage with him is enough. Singleness is a chance to demonstrate that the longing for Christ is deeper and more satisfying than any longing for human intimacy. And this passage tells us, if you're unhappily single, this passage tells us that you're not going to miss out. We're all engaged to Jesus. We'll all be at the biggest wedding in eternity. Jesus has already said to you, I love you. Jesus has already said, I will. If you're single and trying not to be, um, this helps you know what questions to ask when thinking about who to marry. So men, fellas, can you put this woman you're considering, can you put her needs above your own? Can you love her at any cost to yourself and your ambitions? Can you date her with her relationship with God more important to you than her relationship with you? Because if you can't, you shouldn't be stringing her along. For women, can you submit to this man's headship? Is he going to use his headship to serve you? Or is he going to use it to lord it over you? Don't hang around looking for Mr. Perfect with whom you're going to agree on everything. But would submitting to this bloke, be, would it be characterized by obedience to God? Or by always struggling whether or not it's going to be disobedient? For all of us, can you imagine what our church, what the world would be like if every married couple lived this out? If every husband was perfectly um, other person-centered, self-sacrificial love, and the wife submitting in joyful thankfulness, how, how might that transform our church? How might it transform the world? So that's husbands and wives. Let's briefly touch on children and parents and masters and slaves. So we could do a whole extra two sermons on this, but I won't do that to you just now. So um, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, children's and parents first. So notice, it's easy to miss this. Notice that children are addressed as part of church. They're part of the church. Let's not miss that. But children are to obey parents because it is, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, right. That is, it's the natural law. It's the way creation works. But it's also God's written law, verses 2 and 3, um, one which is explicitly good to obey. So for God's people to honor your parents was akin to honoring God. Uh, Notice again, verse 1, in the Lord. Uh, So again, the line has to be drawn. Obey your parents, but draw the line at disobeying God before you disobey God. But God has given authority to parents over their children. So their children should As far as it's up to them possible, obey their parents. Verse 4, fathers mustn't exasperate children. Um, So again, as with husbands and wives, submission 
is paired with qualities expected of the one being submitted to. So fathers shouldn't make it hard for their children to obey by being harsh, by being unpredictable or demanding. Instead, we should take the initiative in bringing children up, knowing God, his word, and his ways. Teach children grace. Teach them forgiveness. We don't need to over-spiritualize everything, okay? We don't need to be Ned Flanders in his children, if that means anything to you. But we do need to make sure that the Bible is getting read or taught. We could do a whole seminar on, on children and parents, but read the Bible, pray, and trust God with the rest. That's the short story. Um, masters and slaves now, verses 5 to 9. I just note this isn't Paul approving of slavery. So he talks about um, uh, marriage and about children and parents using God arguments, theological arguments. He doesn't do that for slavery. Um, so this is not an approval of slavery. But these are principles of heart attitude and motivation for workers and with those over, with authority over them that still last for us today. So what are the gospel, Jesus' motivations for submitting to our masters? Well, verse 6, we are slaves of Christ. Our new identity is in Christ. So we belong to him. Any work we do is really, ultimately, for Jesus. And because of that, we're to work hard, even when we're not being watched. And our motivation is to be the reward that we'll ultimately get from God. And again, the call for submission is paired with responsibility for the one being submitted to. Uh, to treat slaves with respect, not, not threats. And what's the gospel motivation? The, gospel, the Jesus motivation is that ultimately... Slave and, master, slave and master serve one same master. Okay, to sum up, why is submission a good thing? Why does the Holy Spirit want certain roles to be under others in a pecking order and for us to go along with that setup? It's because submission is modeling our relationship on Jesus. And submission is modeling ourselves uh, on Jesus, submitting himself fully to the Father's perfect will. See, Jesus, the submitting, submission is the way Jesus won our salvation, remember? And submitting to Jesus is the way he saves us by grace, through faith. And when, even in part, that those in roles of headship love as Christ loved the church, submission becomes a joyful receiving of care. And when we submit, we mirror to the world that it's a good and wonderful thing to entrust yourself to someone. So submission is a privilege as it proclaims the saving, glorious power of submitting to Jesus. Of course, we're all sinful works in progress. But God is on our side and he's full of grace. And he promises to be at work in us as we seek to honor him in submission.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for creating us male and female and for setting up us in families and having good purposes for work. Uh, please help us as we practically work out how to honor you and how to point to Jesus with the way we submit appropriately. Please help all the husbands here to love their wives as Jesus loved the church. Please help all the wives here to submit to that loving headship. Please help all the children here to obey their parents and honor them. And please help us as we and help the parents to uh, raise children in good, God-honoring ways, instructing children their way to go. And help us all as workers to work for you, not just when we're being watched by our boss. We pray all these things for Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.